going on guys welcome back to another episode of the control room this is the 10th episode and the last one of 2023 thanks for watching and listening up until this point we're going to close out this year with a great one and i just want to give a shout out to all the broadcasters that are working during the holiday season christmas new year's it takes a lot to produce and direct and make graphics and get replay for all of these games and highlights and studio shows and to be away from family in this time of year is always difficult and there's always somebody out there who's getting all this stuff out to you guys um, so i want to give a major shout out to everyone who's working the holiday season now to the top topics first the mavericks they beat the suns on christmas day and it was all led by Luca's 50-burger to reach 10,000 career points. And Derek Lively made a return. For the Pelicans, they lost their last two games by a combined three points. So we're going to break down their clutch execution. And then for the Thunder, they split their pair with the LA teams. But then they took down number one in the West, Minnesota. And we'll break down OKC's big three of SGA chet and j-dub all right let's start with luca and his christmas miracle luca Doncic entered christmas day with 9989 career points after recording a 39 point triple double versus the spurs he had 39 points 12 rebounds 10 assists and did not even play in the fourth quarter it was his 36th career 30 point triple double which passed James Harden for fourth all-time, and now he's one 30-point triple-double shy of tying LeBron for third all-time. And entering Christmas, he was 11 points shy of hitting 10,000. He's one of the best scorers in the first quarter in the NBA. So what did he do? Well, in the first quarter, that's exactly what he did. He broke that milestone in the first quarter and then finished the game with a season high 50 points but that wasn't the only impressive part of his stat line he shot 15 of 25 from the floor 60 percent 8 of 16 from three that's half of his threes a perfect 12 of 12 from the free throw line along with six rebounds 15 assists four steals, and three blocks. I think this might be his best game of the season outside of that 49-point drubbing against Brooklyn at home the same night that Adolis Garcia hit that hit that uh, walk-off in Game 1 of the World Series. But besides that game, this has to be his best of the season. He also tied a Christmas Day record for most three-pointers made because he made eight of them. Grayson Allen also had eight from the Phoenix Suns, but they both tied that record, and that is the most uh, three-point field goals made in a Christmas Day game. And his 12 of 12 free throws were the second most makes without a miss in his career. I give Luca some flack about his free throw shooting because he's a great shooter overall, especially within the two-point range, but... When he has nights like these, if the criticism is loud, the praise has to be just as loud. And this was quite a night to have a perfect free throw shooting night. 
because he needed all 12 of those just to get to 50. His career best is 13 of 13, which was the 2022-23 season opener at Phoenix. Something about playing in Phoenix, right? It was the fourth 50-point game ever on Christmas Day. It was behind Bernard King with 60, Wilt Chamberlain with 59, and he tied Rick Barry with 50. So only four players have ever scored 50 or more on Christmas Day, including Luka on Christmas Day this time. Sixth career 50-point game for Luka Doncic. For the Mavs, they are 6-0 and when Luka scores 50 or more points. And now, with Doncic at 10,000 career points, he did it so quickly. He tied the seventh fastest in NBA history to reach 10,000 career points in terms of games played. That's 358. He was, he's now the fastest among active players, and he's the sixth youngest in NBA history with 10,000 career points. All of this comes from the Elias Sports Bureau. It wasn't just Luka Doncic, though, because, I mean, although the 50-burger is great, he wasn't the one also scoring the other 78 points that the Mavs scored. So let's look at uh, Luca's Elves, or the other Mavs. Derek Lively II made a return. He missed four games with an ankle sprain, and the Mavs went 1-3 in that stretch. Safe to say they missed the big man. He returned with a 20.10 rebound double-double on 8-9 of nine shooting. It was his fifth career double-double, and... That makes it the third most among rookies behind Victor Wembanyama and Chet Holmgren. Derek Jones Jr. also had a great night with 23 points on 9 of 18 shooting, 3 of 8 from 3, his fourth 20-point game this season. Great time to have it. Tim Hardaway Jr. also added 18 points on 6 of 14 shooting, 3 of 9 from 3. So with those four leading the charge, especially with the efficiency that Luka Doncic scored the basketball. It helped the Mavs in this regard. The Mavs had three 20-point scores for the eighth time this season. The Mavs are now 7-1 and one in those games, and from the start of last season through Christmas Day of last season, the Mavs were 3-3 three and three in six games played in that kind of a situation. So, to be 7-1 in the same situation is a lot better than the alternative. As a whole, when we break down the game, the Mavs shot 45 of 84 from the floor. That's 53.6%. That's the second best field goal percentage this season. They shot 29 of 40 from 2. That's 72.5%. That's their best two-point field goal percentage this season alone. Their fifth best two-point field goal percentage in franchise history since 1982-1983 when two-point field goal percentage was first recorded. It was only the 14th game with 70% two-point field goal percentage or better in franchise history since the same date range of 82-83. From three, they shot 16 of 44, about 36.4%. Although their three-point rate was 52.4%, so more than half of their attempts came from three. To me, that's 
not exactly necessary because of the two-point efficiency. As I've said before, if you have a 50% three-point rate, you need to shoot 60% from two and 40% from three to have an equal amount of points generated from both your twos and your threes. Clearly, they had way more efficiency from two than they did from three, and they might have been able to put this game away a lot earlier if they didn't shoot as many threes. But, hey, when you have a win like this, you can't complain about too much. However, from the free throw line, this is an area of of improvement that I've been talking about for the Mavs since last season. They shot 22 of 30 from the free throw line, about 73.3%. This season, the Mavs are 27th in the NBA in free throw percentage at 75%. That might seem like it's supposed to be the average, but teams are getting a little bit better at shooting from the free throw line. So in terms of where they rank amongst other teams in the NBA, they're in the bottom five. They have a total of 177 missed free throws this season and entering Wednesday, December 27th, that is tied for the third most in the NBA with Milwaukee and the LA Lakers. And in this game From the 22 of 30, five of the eight misses did come from Derek Lively II. However, he's a center. That's not really his strongest suit. And I could tell by his reaction from the missed free throws, he knew he didn't want to miss those free throws. No one wants to miss free throws. No one wants to be in that situation. But credit to him for sticking it out, making one of two on his next couple of attempts. So for him... I know that he's going to keep working on it. Luka did a great job going perfect from the line this time. The Mavs as a whole, if they just get better at their free throw percentage, then they can put games away even earlier. They they can win more clutch games, so on and so forth, as I've said in the past. Now, what helped the Mavs even more this time around was their miscellaneous scoring. They scored 50 points in the paint, which is more than their average. They outshot Phoenix in the paint, whereas Dallas shot 25 of 32. That's 78.1% in the paint. Phoenix only shot 23 of 42, which is 54.8%, right? The closer you get to the restricted area, the more efficient, the more you can convert off of your field goal attempts. So for the Mavs to be having a ridiculously high paint field goal percentage, that contributed to that mismatch in the paint. And Derek Lively had a lot to do with that as well because of how good he is in the pick and roll game, how easily Luka Doncic can collapse can collapse the defense and get an easy bucket at the rim for himself and for others. Outside of the paint points though, the Mavs had 22 points off turnovers and they are now 5 and 1 this season when they score 50 paint points and 20 points off turnovers in the same game. That one loss was against Houston, which Luka and Kyrie both missed. Now, the Mavs allowed 14 second chance points. But when you break down how the Phoenix Suns actually got those 14 points, the Suns shot 5 of 14 on second chance field goals, about 35.7%. I'm not able to get any number as to what that average is supposed to be in terms of second chance field goal percentage. But 
they converted less than half of their second chance attempts. Which meant that the Mavs played really good defense, even when they didn't secure the rebound to end the possession initially. This game happened to be designated as a clutch game because Devin Booker hit a six-foot shot to cut the Mavericks' lead to 115-110 with 357 remaining. So by definition, the margin was five or less in the last five minutes of the fourth quarter. However, Phoenix didn't cut the deficit any closer. That still helps out the Mavericks because they are now 10-3 in clutch games this season, and that ties the second-best 13-game start in the clutch in franchise history since the play-by-play era started tracking this in 1996-1997. And one little detail that I want to give credit to Nick Engstadt of Locked On Mavs for is this matchup of Grant Williams and Devin Booker. So Grant Williams took a hard foul to the head on his way to the basket from Devin Booker. And when the, when the Suns brought the ball back over, Grant Williams kind of tussled with Devin Booker. There was a bit of an altercation that led to a double technical. And at that point, this is where Nick Angstadt breaks down this stat. The Mavs were down five, and then they followed that altercation with a 43 to 25 run for the rest of the game and Devin Booker took four shots and picked up his fifth foul halfway through the fourth quarter now one thing I do want to remind the audience is that Grant Williams did the same thing to LeBron James in their first matchup in LA it happened really early in the game so it was more of him just setting the tone but this is one of the reasons why Grant Williams is on this roster He's that, that, that defensive bully, that defensive identity that the Mavs can build on. And for this game, it worked because you go plus 18 from that point on. I mean, at, at that point, like even if Grant Williams is struggling offensively, having him on the defensive end and having him be that defensive anchor, that defensive mood, that that the rest of the Mavericks can feed off of helps a whole lot in terms of how the team can build that chemistry and build that rapport going forward. That's something that athletes can speak to. I am not one of them, but it is statistically notable how the Mavs responded after that event. One thing that we can break down with stats is fast break versus transition because we, As of late, the Mavs have not been scoring as many fast break points as they did earlier in the season, despite the faster pace. Now, the the pace has picked up, and that is showing in the statistics, but if we just look at fast break points, the Mavs were outscored 20-12 to in fast break points against Phoenix, but they averaged 14.4 fast break points per game, which is 13th in the NBA. Last season, they averaged only 11, And it was a lot worse before Kyrie stepped into the Mavs roster. And those 11 fast break points per game last season were 29th in the NBA. However, when you look at it from the perspective of transition, in 2023-2024, the Mavs have 19 transition possessions per game, which is 14th in the NBA, 23 transition points per game, which is 7th in the NBA, 
New York is right behind them, also at 23.0. They also score 1.21 transition points per possession, which is second in the NBA, and Milwaukee also has 1.21, but they're right behind Dallas as well. Last season, we can compare these numbers. From 19.0, they had 15.9 transition possessions per game, which was 28th in the NBA. That's a reflection of the Mavs being in the bottom three in pace. They scored only 17.7 transition points per game, which was 29th in the NBA compared to this season's 23. And their transition points per possession last year were 1.11, which was 24th in the NBA compared to the 1.21 they have now. So that is a, that's another way to really look at the speed at which the Mavs play because Although Luka doesn't have the same type of fast break ability as much of the faster players in the NBA, the pace has sped up and it is showing in the transition numbers more so than in the fast break. So that is one of those stats that you can actually find on NBA.com to look at your favorite team and see how much differently they're playing this year than they have in the past. Now that we're done with the Mavericks, we'll transition to the New Orleans Pelicans and the Oklahoma City Thunder because they had... An interesting week nine as well. That's coming up in the next segment. Okay, let's talk about the New Orleans Pelicans and the two games that they just lost that were back to back. December 23rd versus Houston was a 106-104 loss in regulation. And then... They didn't play until December 26th against Memphis at home again. This time they lost again, but it was 116-115 to 115 in overtime. So why the close losses? More than anything, the free throw shooting. Saturday versus the Rockets, the Pelicans shot 20 of 29, which is 69.0% from the free throw line. Zion Williamson contributed to that poor shooting by shooting only 5 of 10 from the free throw line, despite having that 28-point burst. And the Pelicans ended up losing by 2. And then Tuesday versus the Grizzlies, they were outscored 36-23 to in the fourth quarter. The Pelicans also went cold with their field shooting. But if you look at the free throw shooting of this game, it's actually worse. They shot 21 of 33, 63.6% from the free throw line. The game went to overtime after Jaron Jackson Jr. drew a foul on Jonas Valanciunas and then split the pair of free throws. Then the Pelicans ended up losing by one, but they were really down by four until the final seconds, and then C.J. McCollum hit a three after the game was decided. So these results in the close games that they've been playing, not just these two, but throughout the season, the Pelicans are now 5-8 and eight in clutch games this year, which is their 38.5% win percentage in the clutch. That's 23rd in the NBA. They're also 0-6 in games decided by three points or fewer. Now this game didn't help them, or this one against the Memphis Grizzlies, because it was a four-point margin until CJ hit a three. But... The point still stands. When the margin is tight, the Pelicans can't seem to execute, and it's killing them 
they should not be in the position that they are, as good of a team as they are. But they're going to be dealing with this situation until they fix the free throw shooting. More than anything, that's the number one area that they can clean up right now. And then they can deal with the fact that their offensive schemes have been slowing down from, from time to time. And whenever Zion is going off and somehow he's not getting fed or when Brandon Ingram has the hot hand and he's not getting fed or when the ball's just not moving because this offense is meant to share the basketball, whatever it is, what can be fixed right now is the free throw shooting. I do want to also mention this nugget. Their 0-6 record in games decided by three points or fewer is the worst record in the NBA this year with three or more games played with a three-point margin or smaller. So it's not just bad luck. They are, they are the worst in the NBA at this. They're not supposed to be this bad in these types of situations. I don't expect this to drag on for very long. However, if it's about execution and they're still not executing, well, then we, we're just going to have to wait for them to start executing. I don't know when that's going to be, but they only have so much time. They're already more than a quarter of the way into the season, and this has been hanging over their heads. It's time to get moving. Let's go. Let's transition to the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Thunder snapped the, the LA Clippers nine-game win streak. And then when they played LeBron and the Lakers, the Lakers led, the, excuse me, LeBron led the Lakers to a win with a 47-7 line, despite SGA dropping 34. Including his 47-7 line, LeBron had 13 of 20, 65% shooting from the floor, 5 of 5 from 3, and 9 of 9 from the free throw line. Now, LeBron shoots about the same percentage as Luka from time to time, the average about 75%, more or less. For him to be perfect from the free throw line and to be perfect from three with that many attempts and to be so efficient from all over the floor, I mean, I don't know what you can do with that. Anthony Davis also had 28 points on 11 of 21 shooting, 11 rebounds and seven assists. So it was just that kind of a night for the Lakers. They found a way to bounce back against a good Oklahoma City Thunder team. I will say, though, that in that game, I it felt like the Thunder, based on the box score alone, shot more threes than they're used to. And they take advantage inside more so than outside. So it was a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a surprise seeing that they shot more than 43s in that game. However, they did bounce back and beat the, the West number one seed in the Minnesota Timberwolves. So in this game, Timberwolves versus Thunder, OKC outshot Minnesota 60.5% from the floor to Minnesota's 46.6%. From three, OKC shot 46.2% to Minnesota's 44.4%. Both teams happened to shoot 81.3% from the free throw line, but Minnesota had double the free throw makes and attempts. And they still lost. The Thunder had 35 assists to Minnesota's 22. 
The Thunder had 15 turnovers to Minnesota's 24. And then if you combine if combine if you combine steals and blocks for OKC, OKC had 16. Meanwhile, Minnesota had nine. Kind of odd when your front court is Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert, and you also have Anthony Edwards at the top of the key. But I mean, you got Shea Gilgis Alexander and Chet Holmgren and Jalen Williams and and those guys all over the floor for OKC. So anything is possible. In the miscellaneous categories, the Thunder had advantages in the paint, the fast break, and the points off turnovers. In the paint, they scored 58 to Minnesota's 44. In the fast break, 11 to 3. And in the points off turnovers, 23 to 12. Now, I did just mention OKC's big three. Let's break down how each of them played against the Timberwolves. SGA scored 34 points on 14 of 19 shooting, 6 of 7 from the free throw line, 6 rebounds, 9 assists, and 2 steals. He now has 30 or more points in 8 of his last 9 games. Chet Holmgren scored 20 points on 8 of 13 shooting, 3 of 6 from 3, 4 rebounds, 5 assists, and a block. It's his 6th 20-point game this season, and that is the second most among rookies behind, yes, we know, Victor Wembanyama. And then Jalen Williams, J-Dub Jalen Williams, scored 21 points on 7 of 11 shooting, 4 of 6 from 3, 3 assists, and added 2 blocks. He's now scored in double figures in all but one game he's played this season, as I said the last time I talked about Jalen Williams. So really, he's he's a double-digit scoring machine. What more can I say? It wasn't just those three, though. Lou Dort had a nice game with 20 points on 7 of 9 shooting, 5 of 6 from 3, with 4 rebounds, 2 steals, and 2 blocks, making this his fourth 20-point game this season. So the Thunder, I mean, they have had their battles with Minnesota so far. They've lost one. They've won one. These two teams are the top of the West. And unless Denver finds a way to somehow usurp them in the standings, these two teams are probably going to stay there as long as they're both healthy and as long as their schemes keep working. So it's, it's exciting for, these, for the Thunder being a young team, being that high in the standings. And it's interesting watching Minnesota really with their NBA best defensive rating. Kind of catch a lot of these teams by surprise. I mean, it, it wasn't something that everyone was expecting that Minnesota would just somehow be lockstep, like the number one in defense, but that's where these teams are. And that's, it's probably going to stay that way for a while. So we'll have to get used to it. All right. Now I want to transition to the other Christmas day games. I got just a couple notes on the rest of them. The Knicks beat the Bucks with Jalen Brunson scoring 38 points after getting beat by the Bucks by 19 in Madison Square Garden just two days prior. And I think the Bucks were on a winning streak, including that Knicks game, until the Knicks snapped it in that second of two games. Then for Denver, Nikola Jokic knocked down 18 of 18 free throws, and Jamal Murray led all scorers with 28 in the Nuggets' win over the Warriors. 
I'm not going to get into the whole foul and defense discussion. That's for another time. The Celtics and the Lakers traded blows, but Boston ended up pulling away. I'm going to break down the Celtics in just a moment. And then Philly and Miami. There was no Joel Embiid, no Jimmy Butler, but Jaime Jaquez Jr. delivered with a career-high 31 points and 10 rebounds in the Heat's win over the 76ers. He was the fifth rookie ever with 30 points and 10 rebounds on Christmas Day. And the Miami Heat had posted a bunch of stats regarding this performance and where it ranks in NBA history and so on and so forth. There, there's just so many of them based on this performance, but I do want to highlight Jaime Hawkins Jr. He is one of the best rookies coming out of this class. And besides Victor Wembanyama, Chet Holmgren, and in my estimation, Derek Lively, based on his impact for the Mavs, Hawkins Jr. is a rookie you need to watch if you haven't already. He's one you need to keep up with because he's been so good out of UCLA. He's been good at UCLA. He's been good since stepping on the floor. And having this game on national TV only helps his case when it comes to being one of the premier talents that have come out of the league in recent years. Now, I do want to highlight the Celtics. And before I do, I, I want to give a highlight. I want to give a shout out to the guys at the Dunker Spot podcast. They can break down these Christmas Day X's and O's better than I can. And I will link that episode in the description. But one thing that I happened to notice, and more people talked about it. They, they did talk about it on NBA Countdown, and Stephen Nikias did talk about these, this tendency for the Celtics in their episode. They are the number one team in the East, the number one team in the NBA. Their game against the Lakers was a microcosm of a recurring issue that I've started to notice. Their three-point rate is getting absurdly high. For the season, they're at 48%. And why do I have this as an issue? The Celtics this season from three are shooting 37.6%, about 11th in the NBA. From two, they're shooting 57.7%. That's third in the NBA. And I've said multiple times about that split between two-point field goal percentage, three-point field goal percentage, and where that would need to be for a team to sway one way or the other. It gets interesting when you start breaking it apart between wins and losses. Because in wins, the Celtics' two-point field goal percentage is 59.1%, and that's third in the NBA. Their three-point field goal percentage is 39.7%, which is 11th in the NBA. And their three-point rate is about 48.4%, and that's the highest in the NBA. So they're at about the 60-40 split, just under 50 on the three-point rate. When they're winning, they are finding that happy balance of we're going to take threes when we need to, we're going to take, we're going to get inside when we need to. I mean, they have Chris Porzingis being able to go inside the paint and score at will, and he's been a, a floor spacer as well as a as an anchor right at the right in the restricted area. But in losses, this is where things get interesting. They shoot only 52.8% from two. That's 11th in the NBA. 29.5% from three. I'm going to repeat that. 29.5% from three. That's all the way down to 30th in the NBA. 
and their three-point rate falls just a little bit to 46.6%, which is the second highest in the NBA. So why is the three-point rate still so high when you're not shooting well from three? That's what I don't understand and why I've been having a problem with it with the Dallas Mavericks last year and why I thought that that's what killed them. By them, I mean the Boston Celtics in game seven of the Eastern, Eastern Conference Finals against Miami because they shot a lot of bricks from three And that did not help their case because Miami was giving them every opportunity to win that game. Boston was really giving up that opportunity to win the game by shooting so many threes. And Miami took advantage. Houston did the same thing against Golden State at home in Game 7 in uh, 2018 when they didn't have Chris Paul. And for the Mavericks, it killed them in several games last season. So I'm still not understanding. I, I know that people will say, oh, it's the analytics. Oh, the math is the way that it is. It it can't bother me this much without there being a reason. Because mathematically, it's not making sense that if you're shooting that poorly from three, you keep taking as many threes as you do when you win, or almost as many threes as you do when you win. That That's not what adds up to me. But... That is a problem for the Boston Celtics. That might be a problem for the Dallas Mavericks down the line. However, they're just going to be the ones to deal with it. It's not like I can control whether or not they can shoot more or less threes. I'm just going to tell you the math like I see it, and we'll go on from there. That does it for this segment, but we're not finished just yet. Before we go, we got one more segment and we're going to talk about our upcoming matchups for the next week. All right. In this segment, we are going to talk about what's coming in the next episode. However, before we get there, I do want to mention that some news broke this morning, Wednesday, December 27th. The NBA Board of Governors has approved the sale of the Dallas Mavericks. And I'll read the article that broke this morning from NBA.com. The NBA Board of Governors has approved the sale of the controlling interest in the Dallas Mavericks from Mark Cuban to the families of Dr. Miriam Adelson and Sivan and Patrick Dumont. Mr. Dumont, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, will serve as the Mavericks' governor. The transaction is expected to close this week. So that's some new news. We kind of expected that. Based on reports that broke the stories in the first place, it was somewhat expected that a decision and if there was going to be approval, the closing of the sale would all happen by the end of this calendar year. And that has now come to pass as we entered the last week of the calendar year. So now there will be a change in ownership in Dallas. Mark Cuban will still be hands-on with basketball operations, but this is a bit of a change and could be the first step in terms of legalizing gambling in Texas. But that is down the line for the future. Next, I want to bring up that NBA All-Star voting is happening right now. The NBA did not ask me to talk about this, as I said last week. However, it's been open for weeks now it's going to be open for a while you can vote every day so go to nba.com 
and vote for your favorite all-stars in the East and the West for the top five. And try to make try to make some noise. I mean, who knows what who the fans will vote for this time around. Next week, we will have our week 10 recap, and it will be the first episode of 2024. Crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And then before we check out the week's schedule, I do want to mention that the Dolphins downed Dallas. Try to say that five times fast. And the Cowboys will host the Detroit Lions next week on Saturday, actually. Now, one thing about the Cowboys, especially in their losses, they have not been able to stop the run, and a lot of football analysts have caught on to this. Arizona has done this to them. Philadelphia has done this to them. Buffalo has done this to them. Now Miami has done this to them. It's just, it's starting to become a bit of a problem. All of this has happened on the road, though. However, you got David Montgomery coming into town behind that Detroit Lions offensive line. So the main focus is to contain that man because if you don't you're gonna have a bad time but the cowboys know that hopefully and also one other thing that i don't want to leave out micah parsons has not been called for holding not him holding but others holding him in a while i think it's been like 36 quarters that that seems abysmal. Like he didn't get he didn't draw a holding call in November, in December, to the point where I think Jerry Jones has actually talked about it. So there's a lot going on with the Dallas Cowboys. The first thing that matters more than anything else, just beat the Detroit Lions at home. Start 8-0 at home throughout the regular season. Let's not give them any life. Now let's go to the National NBA tip-off. Wednesday, December 27th, the Toronto Raptors will visit the Washington Wizards and will play at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central on NBA TV. Thursday, December 28th, the Detroit Pistons will visit the Boston Celtics at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on NBA TV. Now the Pistons already have the NBA record for the most consecutive losses in NBA history. I would say hopefully they don't extend that streak against the Boston Celtics, but it's the Boston Celtics, so we'll just see what happens. That game will be followed by the Miami Heat and the Golden State Warriors at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on NBA TV. Friday, December 29th, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Cleveland Cavaliers will tip off at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on NBA TV, followed by the Memphis Grizzlies and the LA Clippers at 10.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 p.m. Central on NBA TV. Now on your local broadcasts, on Wednesday, December 27th, the New York Knicks and the Oklahoma City Thunder will play at 8, 7 Central on MSG and Valley Sports Oklahoma. And the Cavs and the Mavs will tip off at 8.30, 7.30 Central on Valley Sports Ohio and Valley Sports Southwest. Thursday, December 28th, the Mavs will play the Timberwolves and this will be their last back-to-back for about a month. because Lord knows they need it because they've played what looks like five games in a week. They'll play the Timberwolves at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and Valley Sports North. 
And the Utah Jazz will play the New Orleans Pelicans at 8-7 Central on K-Jazz and Valley Sports New Orleans. Then Friday, December 29th, the Oklahoma City Thunder will visit the Denver Nuggets again. We know what happened the last time. At 9-8 Central on Valley Sports, Oklahoma, and Altitude Sports. And then Saturday, December 30th, the Mavs will visit the Golden State Warriors at 8-30-7-30 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and NBC Sports Bay Area. I'll be by myself on that Valley Sports Southwest broadcast, so check out the graphics there if you're in this area. And then on New Year's Eve, Sunday, December 31st, the Lakers will play the Pelicans at 7-6 Central on Spectrum Sports Net and Valley Sports New Orleans, and the Brooklyn Nets will play the Oklahoma City Thunder at 7-6 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and the Yes Network. So, Now that that's all out of the way, I want to thank you guys for listening and watching and consuming this throughout 2023. It's been a blast making this so far. We're 10 episodes in, a lot to go. I will catch you guys in 2024. Happy New Year to all of you. Thanks again. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.